about like even 10 years ago like when where things were what the what was like the mainstream view on climate change 10 years ago oh yeah um, you know what were the voices in our in the community like and think about where we are now where climate and sustainability and uh, equity these are issues now that are like really really top of mind which isn't to say there isn't so much work that needs to happen but it's just to say that finally it feels like there is money at the table there's political will there are all these things that haven't been there and i take that as like a, an incredible kind of feeling of of momentum hello everyone and welcome to the eat real to heal podcast i'm your host nicolette richet on today's show, I have a very a lovely human being. She is smart. She is committed. She's a mother. She is a doctor of philosophy in an incredible field that we are going to be talking about. And I welcome Dr. Kim Slater to the show. Now, in today's episode, Dr. Slater shares her newest event, which she's hosting in collaboration with Hollyhock. Now, Hollyhock is an incredible retreat center. It is a wellness center on Cortez Island in beautiful British Columbia, BC. If any of you have the opportunity to get out to Hollyhock, please check out their website. The link is below and look at all the events that they're offering there, particularly Kim's newest event, Climate for Change 2022, which begins this June 26th to the 30th. And I promise you, if you sign up for that event, you are going to have an incredible time. It'll be heart moving, spirit moving, emotionally moving. Um, and it is an important event because this event is for the powerhouses that are leading the climate change movement. And it will reconnect a diverse group of Indigenous grassroots and sectoral leaders from all across Canada who are committed to going beyond incremental climate change. And for those people who are also committed to taking bold steps that are needed to bring about a safe and just climate future. In addition, Kim shares way to deal with eco-anxiety, something that so many of us are feeling as we have been aware of climate change for so long. And also, Kim also shares what's needed to reach the tipping point to catalyze the change we need to see how quickly things can move when that action starts happening and what to know about privilege and how to create space for other voices that don't often get heard. Now, Kim is originally from Guelph, Ontario, but she's resided in the Sea to Sky region for the past decade. And in that time, she's worn many, many hats. I've had the privilege of working with her at the resort municipality of Whistler. And she's also worked really primarily along the nonprofit and public sectors um, in the executive director and program manager and grant writing roles. So Kim is a powerhouse for putting organizations together, bringing in the money and building those organizations into incredible um, companies that are able to make great change in air quality and in invasive species in um, so many different sectors. She also volunteers for the Red Cross and the Whistler Community Foundation, alongside other community champions in the service of sustainability. So without further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Kim Slater to the show. 
Before we dive into the show with Kim, I also want to make you aware of a few other amazing events that we have going on. One is called Decolonizing Your Plate, which starts June 1st. This is an incredible program that you can sign up for on our website. The link is below. And this is where we are going to be working together for six weeks live online. So you can sign up from anywhere in the world. And we are going to be addressing so many important topics around colonization, what that means in relationship to any potential chronic health issues you have and your diet. We're going to be looking at eating foods every single week that help to reverse chronic disease so that if you're suffering from, I don't know, arthritis, infertility, diabetes, heart disease, any kind of autoimmune disorder, you can kickstart the healing process. So many people who have taken this program, they have been able to completely eliminate their arthritis with, within less than four weeks, reverse diabetes in 30 days, um, completely reverse their infertility and have babies after their doctors told them that they would never have babies. The results are incredible. So Sign up for this course because it is so important for you to learn how the effects of colonization have affected you, your community, those people around you that normally don't get a voice and what you can do about it starting today. So here we go. Let's jump into the show with Dr. Kim Slater. See you at the end, my friends. Okay. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. On today's show, I'm so excited to have Kim Slater. Welcome, Kim. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So Kim, um, you and I are both fellow residents here in Pemberton, British Columbia. And you and I go back long, long, long way, like way before babies, um, when we both worked for the resort municipality of Whistler. That's yes. a fun Yes, I don't even count all those years ago. But. Yeah, th those are years ago. And so much has happened since then, because uh, I think I was just going on mat leave and you replaced me. Is that correct? Is that when we first met? Yeah, yeah, 2011-ish. Yeah, and oh my gosh, and we've had some adventures. Um, we did, so we worked in do, uh, doing environmental policy work at, for the resort municipality Whistler, and then you became our executive director for the Sea to Sky Clean Air Society. Mm -hmm, that's right. That was a long time ago. Were you on the Basis Species Council as well? Uh, no, no, I've done some sort of contract work for them, though. Yeah, yeah. So you've been in the world of sustainability for a long time, and that is, I would say, one of your biggest passions, and we're going to be diving into all of that. But first, what I want to get into is how did you end up doing this work? I don't even know that story, despite how many years I've known you. Yeah, it, you know, it's a great question. I, um, you know, I've sort of always felt a calling, I'd say, from when I was in the fourth grade and did, you know, a very dramatic speech about the planet dying and, you know, being, I think, showing signs of early eco-anxiety, um, which is unfortunately very common now. Um, and then explain that, explain that a, a little bit more because I think a lot of our listeners won't know what eco-anxiety is. And the ones that do know it, feel it extremely. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, young people are, um, you know, they're, they're very sensitive and they're, they're quite tuned in to um, the sort of narratives around um, a six species event, extinction event, uh, climate change, you know, this feeling of we're living in sort of end times. Um, you know, we're seeing young people who 
are not wanting to have children because they're afraid of the future. Uh, and it's just, uh, you know, we're just seeing sort of skyrocketing um, rates of ang of all kinds of anxieties, um, but certainly some related to just the feeling like there isn't, uh, the future is very grim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you have a young daughter. How old is Olivia now? She's eight. She's eight years old. And how do you navigate that in your house? Because obviously this is, you know, you're deep into this work and like, do you bring that home, that work home with you? And how do you talk to Olivia about it? And, you know, is she, are you seeing signs of eco anxiety in her? Not yet. Um, you know, I've, I've been really, um, I think because I'm aware that this is, uh, something that's happening, um, I've been really tried to be very careful about the sort of narratives um, and sharing. And so, you know, being able to convey what's happening in the world while also trying to present like a pathway to being engaged and, and empowered to be able to make change. Because I think that that's the, the only solution that I see, um, you know, the, those feelings of anxiety when they don't have any place to go, when there's not a feeling that you can take action or that, what you do is going to make a difference. Um, it just kind of, it leads to sort of uh, like basically paralysis, you know, like just being able to, not being able to really kind of plug into uh, making change. So I think for young people uh, and certainly for my daughter, I'm hoping to um, try and illuminate all the opportunities there are um, for making a difference. Yeah, because we're stuck in this world too. Like she's not yet, I'm assuming on Instagram and TikTok mm -hmm. and all of the, yeah, yeah, she's still, and oh my gosh, I have three girls. And if, you know, I would love to be able to just like rip their phones out of their hands, but they're teenagers and it's just, it's so challenging, but the stuff that they're exposed to, it's, you know, everything from like watching, you know, pigs get slaughtered and everything that happened during COVID and watching like these environmental disasters. It's like, it's hard to, um, yeah, it's hard to, to keep our kids sheltered so that they can develop that sense of hope and that sense of potential and that sense of, you know, knowing, you know, being able to see the goodness in the world so that they do want to lead from that um, motivation versus, you know, exactly what you said, becoming paralyzed and not even knowing what to do. Um, and so for just, just for, you know, all the parents that are listening, how, what are some tips you have for them to suggest, you know, and I know it's hard to do in this world of like where some kids get phones at five and six years old, but what are some suggestions that you have for parents to be able to keep that spirit alive in them for, you know, seeing that potential that exists in the world? Yeah, I, I think that's an incredible question. Um, you know, certainly our kids look to us. Um, so a lot of it's about sort of modeling, um, being engaged. And that looks like so many different things, but it's like, you know, showing your kids how to show up to community meetings and how to um, be like an active participant who's caring across all of their different domains. Um, that's really powerful. And it's, you know, so they're just, they're watching all the time. Um, so I think we have a commit, we have a sort of responsibility to, to show that to our children. Um, increasingly, I'm really interested in ways of kind of creating uh, spaces that are friendly for children to be involved in terms of, and, and actually seeing how um, decision-making plays out. 
Uh, I would love if we had more community spaces where they could see sort of, you know, elders like that are deliberating on issues that are important to the community and, and children being in those spaces, I think is, um, is so helpful. And, and both for the, the adults in the room to remember like why they're doing the work that they're doing, um, but also for kids to see how to do that. Um, so I think that's one thing, you know, another is, you know, it's holding in balance, like that optimism and that hope without it being sort of false mm -hmm. and being like kind of bypassing the, what is really here. And so some of it I think is about uh, cultivating a kind of resilience, a kind of like emotional, spiritual grit like a lot of conversation in the sort of like corporate world about like grit, but I, I, I see that at like a, that sort of like deeper level um, because these are really challenging times. And I, I would hate for my daughter to kind of get to adulthood and somehow like all of a sudden, like that kind of bears down because that's, I think really can be quite traumatizing. Mm -hmm. uh, Somehow it's about like cultivating that kind of like resilience and and frankly like support systems for grieving. Yeah. You know, like there's a lot of change happening in the world and um and some of it is about loss. And so we have to hold each other to be able to like kind of navigate and like work through the losses that are happening. Yeah, no, that's a really good point that you raised because of the fact that we do have the broad spectrum of emotions. And so it's not that, you know, we shouldn't feel despair and we shouldn't feel sadness and we shouldn't feel anger and fear. I mean, those are all emotions. And I think it's so important as we're raising our children as well, that we allow them to feel the broad spectrum of emotions. But you did hit on a really good point. It's um, being able to talk to somebody because I get a lot of clients um, that, you know, they're, they're just at a complete loss. And it's true, they are almost literally paralyzed, they don't know what to do. And I see that they have young kids um, running around, but I see them often just talking about the despair, without going out and getting support, to be able to talk about their emotions of what they feel around the state of the earth right now. And um, the state of the environment and the state of, you know, climate change and sustainability and water and air and soil and I mean, absolutely everything. There is so much going on and these are really important topics and we can't just gloss over them with, you know, let's just be hopeful because at the end of the day, we still have to take action. But to sit in the despair and not find a way out of it is also not going to get us anywhere as well. And so we need to find that beautiful balance of being able to, to address all the emotions that are intact. Um, so, uh, so with the work that you're doing in the world, I know you are playing a part in that. So can you talk a little bit more about the beautiful work that you're doing in the world and, um, Actually, no, let's hold on. I want to come back and I want to chat about you being a fourth grader and feeling that th those deep emotions about the state of the world. How did you navigate that? What were some of the tools that you had to support you through that? Yeah, frankly, like I spent a, a lot of years um, feeling really, um, really sad about it and feeling... Um, panicked and um yeah I, I 
and I think it was a bit bewildering for my parents. You know, they're just coming from different generational view of abundance. And, and certainly I was raised, you know, with abundance and privilege. And um, so I don't think they really knew what to do or how to support me through those times. You know, I do recall having some really phenomenal teachers along the way that were really um you know, they were, they kind of tuned me into what was happening in the world. I did my undergrad at Guelph in international development. And that whole period, I think about like, just there were times where I would just be weeping, you know, weeping over what I was reading or, or learning about. And, um, you know, definitely felt sort of a strong call to do something. Um, I think that, you know, because I've, you know, I've been raised with privilege. I have this sort of, I've had like resources and sort of like had enough resilience to be able to do some of that work. I think for a lot of folks that come from different sort of walks of life, you know, there's just so much trauma that they're trying to work through. They're, they're you know, being able to think about what's happening to other folks in other parts of the world. It's like, they're, they're just really trying to, you know, survive. Um, with what what they have you know what's happening in their sort of immediate um context so yeah i i don't know i think by fortune of by virtue of having really incredibly inspiring people around me has been a huge huge source of sort of like energy and um inspiration and hope you know like especially now you know i think about like even 10 years ago, like when, where things were, what the, what was like the mainstream view on climate change 10 years ago? Oh yeah. Um, you know, what were the voices in our, in the community? Like, and think about where we are now, where climate and sustainability and uh, equity, these are issues now that are like really, really top of mind, which isn't to say there isn't so much work that needs to happen, but it's just to say that finally it feels like there is money at the table, there's political will, there are all these things that haven't been there. And I take that as like a, an incredible kind of feeling of, of momentum. Um, and you know, you and I have been in the, in this world, this space of thinking about this. And I was exactly the same way, like, you know, going through such intense waves of moment and, you know, hope and despair and, and what you said about surrounding yourself with the other people who are in that space, um, you know, of, you know, so that you can learn from them and you can grow together and you can problem solve together. And, um, and when one's feeling intense hope, the other one's feeling intense despair. And so then you're constantly like, it's like, you know, you're on a teeter totter. Cause that's, that is just the way that it is when you're navigating this, this world and thinking about these things. Um, and, and when we take a lot of these emotions on and, um, but the but the one part I have to agree with you is that yes is that there is it feels like there's huge momentum but you just also reminded me is that when you've been in this space for so long like you you this stuff has been going on like it's been at the table politically in schools in our courses that we took in university 20 years ago and well in my case 20 years ago and yours a little bit less but you know we've been talking about the same things over and over and over and over again right but and and now though we do have there's more money, but we still have a ways to go. And so, and I know you'd agree with me that when you're in this work, when you're in this world, it is a life 
time of work, right? Even though we would love to see the, the solutions happen tomorrow, it is a lifetime of work and we still have a long ways to go. So one thing I'm curious about, because you did talk about how parents can support their children. What, like, were your parents able to do that for you? Like, I know that they were a bit bewildered. They come from a different generation, but, you know, were they out there at the political front lines? Were they taking you to rallies? Like, where did you first really connect with this space and, and with these tools for positive change? Yeah, I mean, my parents were very supportive. Uh, like they didn't always understand me, I don't think, as far as sort of my connection, um, you know, into this work. Um, but, you know, my mom was a teacher along and, and was like, you know, there was both my parents were, were incredibly supportive of the things that I cared about. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up, Guelph is like a pretty progressive town. Like there's, um, you know, and, and fairly, you know, progressive university. And so, yeah, there are lots of sort of people that I um, went to school with, um, students and teachers that I think were also, you know, very, um, I, th I think we were very aligned in terms of thinking about some of these issues, uh, even 20 years ago, which is, I'm not that much, uh, we're pretty much the same age, I think. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's been an evolution. I can't really say there is sort of like, you know, one, um, you know, one moment or sort of like, you know, one epiphany. I think it's been definitely like an unfolding mm -hmm. um, and a constant learning journey. Mm -hmm. And so, which brings you to going to university, being connected, learning, more learning. You went and did your, what did you do your master's in? Um, in international relations. And then now you just completed your PhD, which I have to say, congratulations, because I know the amount of work that went into that. <laughs> so good for you. So yeah, let's talk about your PhD now, because this has been a long journey and it is has been an evolution and you're still going forward. And now you're doing your fellowship at the University of Toronto. So, let, so I want to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, by Providence, I met uh, John Robinson, um, who is, you know, just an incredible um, leader in the sustainability space. Um, you know, he truly, um, he, he is like the ultimate sort of like renaissance, like he is in so many spaces and so many disciplines, you know, it's, he's really truly transdisciplinary in all mm -hmm. of us. And so I had met him at UBC um I said wow this is someone I'd love to work with um and to have as an advisor and when I reached out you know it took me a long time to like kind of muster up the courage to like reach out and write like a formal kind of introduction and like express my potential research area and I got an almost immediate reply from him saying hey that's great I just moved to Toronto I'm now at the University of Toronto which is harder um made for a cross-country move for my family um to to the city of Toronto, which is where I had done my master's. So it wasn't like completely um, foreign or anything like that. So I spent a year there doing the coursework and um, technically I'm in the department of uh, geography and planning, um, mostly like as a, it's, it's a very, it's a very open department in terms of sort of accommodating different, um, yeah, multiple different ways of thinking about sustainability. So that's sort of why I ended up there. And now I am still working with John 
we are co-leading a project called the Urban Climate Action um, Project. And there's also a network. And really this is about strengthening the partnership between uh, the University of Toronto and the City of Toronto to help accelerate the city's climate action plan, Transform TO. Uh, so we're doing a bunch of different work um, in sort of all of the different um, high emitting producing sectors. So buildings, transportation, energy, and waste. Um, and a lot in terms of embedding sustainability in the curriculum um, and sort of just really trying to plug into those uh, capacity gaps that the, the city may have. Um, so yeah, that's really rich work. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a ton of incredible relationships there. Uh, that project is part of this broader urban climate action network, which is itself a little cohort of the university, uh, a university coalition of about 24 research institutions across North America that are deeply invested in uh, doing different kinds of climate work. Um, so some of it's really with a climate justice lens. Uh, other folks are, we're, we're trying to really kind of promote this idea of partnerships and, um, and universities kind of producing actionable knowledge. So universities mm -hmm. tend to kind of work on curiosity-based um, projects, and that's really important. Uh, we definitely need to be sort of pushing the bounds, but there's just so many societal challenges that need all of the work and the funding and the, the thinking um, that society has to muster, and that means mm -hmm. universities to be involved, especially when we were talking about climate. Yeah, yeah. that's all that work. I would <laughs> return to one point that you made because, you know, it's, um, you know, one of the great kind of learnings for me is just the need to uh, hold paradoxes. Mm -hmm. So even as things feel like they are evolving too slowly and they're not meeting the sort of imperatives of the climate emergency, at the same time, we also know um, that tipping points, which Malcolm Gladwell has written a ton about uh, and others, you just need 20%. And yeah. that change, we are, we are in the sea of change. It's happening all around us and things can change very, very quickly. Um, you know, I always think about social media and how that's just like fundamentally altered mm -hmm. everyone's everything right? Our, our day-to-day -day lives, the way that we think about things, the way that we uh, communicate, how businesses w work, everything. And that happened basically overnight. Yeah. So I'm glad that you brought that up. <laughs> what was that? So it's just that, you know, it, when I start to feel like things aren't sort of progressing enough, I'm also like, you know, really, um, really excited by the ideas of like quantum social theory and mm -hmm. the idea of fractals where making change in one domain has like repercussions um, across multiple domains. I love how, um, yeah, and that part is so important too, because it, it is true, like change comes about slowly and then it accelerates incredibly quickly once you reach that tipping point and it is like it feels like a quantum leap when that does happen and you know the point that you said too about 
um, the fact that, you know, you're in a university that's very progressive and, you know, lots of different viewpoints brought in. And so it's that interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary lens that is so important. And it is happening now. Most universities that used to be so siloed, now they're realizing, okay, it's not just about departments working together within the university. It's not just about the faculties, you know, learning from each other and through each other, but it's also about universities working with um, policy developers and, you know, working together they're on the ground with the citizens and I think in the past we've we've talked about this and we've set up systems where to make it look like that was happening but it wasn't actually happening and now it actually feels like it is and this I do see contributing to that tipping point which is literally either we're in it right now on it right now it's just around the corner but it can happen that quickly and doctor you reminded me of what dr zach bush said he said, if we can get, um, if we can get, I think it's 16% of North Americans or the world's population um, uh, eating organic food, I think it's 16%, he said, that is the tipping point that will affect climate change on a huge scale because it'll affect our food production and distribution systems. It'll affect the amount of pesticides and toxins and other chemicals that are being put into our air, water, and soil. And it can fundamentally shift everything, human health, you know, um, planetary health, like it's, it's these, and it doesn't even take the 20%, you know, is what he is suggesting, but it's true that 20% number is critical. And I think that offers a lot of hope to people because you know, we're out there doing this work thinking like, oh my God, everybody needs to, but no, it's like 20%. And so you can choose to be part of that 20%, just knowing every action you take today. And then the third part about what you said that was really important is the taking action. That is the part that while we do have social media, I tend to see, you know, having three teenagers is that a lot of times they are just their action in their mind can be like hit, like, hit, like, hit, like, but we do need to transcend that. And we do need to actually get out there and take action. So I'm curious about what some of this action can look like. So many things. Yeah, I, I really, um, you know, there's some great lists out there. Drawdown has done, you know, some tremendous work to kind of identify those like really powerful, high impact actions that can be taken by individuals as well as businesses and organizations, governments. Like, uh, and I think it's important to think about ourselves, um, you know, what we can do as individuals, but also to kind of situate ourselves within collectives. You know, like, how does the work that you do, you know, kind of help to um to grow change like in all of the different spaces that you find yourself um i think that there's been it, it's been a mistake some of the messaging that has sort of framed individuals as consumers so it's like you can shop your way out of this buy this mm -hmm. product or you know it's up to you to like you know cut your carbon emissions and i i think there's some truth in that sure like we should all be doing as much as we can do to eat the right foods to you know really think about our own behaviors um but it's also if we look at like where the bulk of emissions are coming from you know there's it's like a hundred companies and really of those it's probably like 20 major companies that are responsible for like 75 percent. i don't know i'm just it's something like that it is yeah um, you know, so there's, there's a real need 
for the work that we're doing to also be about organizing and finding those sort of like leverage points where we can, you know, kind of compel those, those big actors to change. Um, you know, the sort of downloading of, of, of actions on to individuals and households, it creates a tremendous amount of angst. Mm, it, <laughs> right? does. It, it can be empowering, but also it can go to the point where there's like, it's guilt inducing. Um, it creates a real divide across um, the haves and the have nots, people who can mm. afford to, to, to buy this, the more expensive green product, like, um, and that's not what we need right now. We need to find ways to come together uh, and to feel that sort of like support and critical mass to be able to make the huge changes that are needed. And I, yeah, that's important that you brought that up too, because I know for myself that when I was, you know, on the grounds working with a lot of nonprofits, working with um, education institutes, uh, working in government, a lot of it was focused on individual actions, you know, like recycling and, um, or ride your bike to work week, which yes, it is awesome and important to ride your bike more, not just for the environment, but for your own health as well. But at the end of the day, if you have a mom who can't afford, you know, to, she's got three kids and a single mom and she's working two jobs, you know, really, is she going to ride her three kids to work on, on her bike? No, that's not what she needs. She actually probably needs a vehicle or we need to have an incredibly wicked transportation system. Mm -hmm. But then we also need to consider all the other aspects and, and I know that I remember with certain organizations, you know, we had individuals just thinking like, why doesn't everybody just ride their bike to work? And it is not that simple because we also need to look at the planning of a community and geography, which hence the department that you're in, because all of those factors affect how we make these individual changes. However, you and I both worked in government and you and I both saw when citizens did get together and doing something as simple as like writing a letter to the mayor that seriously got internally everyone in our MOW like saying, oh my God, we need to respond, you know? And so something as powerful as writing a letter and voicing your opinion and saying, we want something different does start to spiral and get people, in, you know, into that vortex of saying, okay, well, we need to do something as well. So I'm curious, you mentioned drawdown and some of these high impact actions that people can take. Are, can you give us a few ideas of what those high impact actions are? Because yes, we can situate ourselves into these collectives, but then what happens after that? Yes. Um, well, certainly, I mean, if we are just talking about sort of like personal actions, you know, trying to uh, eat a plant-based diet is, is one thing. Um, even if it's not every day of the week, but that, that is a really high impact action, um, you know, or just eating um, eating more country foods, um, you know, doing a little bit of work with the center, formerly called the Center for Sustainability and looking at uh, food policy and just the importance of sort of restoring indigenous food ways. Uh, and I know that that connects in with some of your, your work um, as well. So so yeah, I, I think, um, I, I guess I, I'm a little reticent to kind of just to be very prescriptive because mm -hmm. there, you know, we're talking about change um, in the context of complexity mm -hmm. um, and there's a tremendous amount of interconnections. And so it's, it's hard to say, this is like the silver bullet of the thing that you, everyone should do. 
but yes, definitely like being thoughtful about what you're putting into your body. Um, you know, being thoughtful about how you're getting around and trying to, wherever you can uh, use low carbon uh, methods, uh, active is great. You know, it's great for your body as well as for the planet. Um, and, you know, thinking about like, what are the things you can do to just reduce the amount of consumption um, and to kind of reframe ourselves as being consumers? You know, how are we being producers, like producers of ideas and producers of like generosity? I think that there's a lot that can go along with just sort of reframing how we spend our time. So yeah, just like not, you know, just not shopping as much, like, which isn't to say you're not going to sometimes, but um, yeah, like however you kind of come in, um, I just think it's important for folks to see themselves and not feel like, you know, I think sometimes in these spaces, there can be this sort of like tendency toward kind of like moral, uh, a moral hierarchy or kind of like, mm-hmm a sort of purity complex of like, you know, I'm, I'm better than somebody else because I'm doing, you know, more of the green stuff. And I think that just ends up being very divisive. Um, so the more we can kind of like, you know, think about all of the different ways we can be um, just being, you know, better community members, better, like, you know, living in better relation with land and with community, I think, um, whatever that looks like is, is probably the, a good direction to go in. Yeah. And these conversations are important that we have these um, conversations and these are the beautiful things that we can do with our kids as well. Starting off having these conversations around values, conversations around how do we want to be in the world um, versus you know, we did move through the, okay, if you recycle, then you're an environmentalist, you know, and, um, you know, or if you buy organic genes, you know, then you are an environmentalist and, um, and you're contributing to bettering climate change and you're contributing to, you know, and, and that we, we've moved through that. We're still in that, you know, if you buy a green bottle of cleaning products, then you're doing good work in the world. And, and, you know, and, I, and we moved in that direction because A, we probably had to, right? We had to get people to stop throwing things in landfill. We had to get people to um, stop producing as many chemicals. But at the same time, though, um, having these really important conversations around values, how we want to be in the world, um, how can we contribute in ways that are not about consuming these green products? Because that you know, that didn't change a ton because at the end of the day, a cleaning bottle made of plastic still has chemicals, even if though it says green and eco and organic as the next cleaning product that doesn't have any of those labels. And so it's still producing the same, taking up the same amount of resources, producing the same amount of waste. And so moving into this conversation about how we can reduce more is also really, really important. And then going beyond to say, how can we contribute? How can we be of service? How can we love our fellow citizens? How can we judge less? How can we, you know, there's beautiful conversations around that that are just as important or probably even more important that we're having those. Um, And I think more than ever coming out of two years of isolation for a lot of people, you know, entering into these spaces with others and having these really deep valued conversations is so important. 
Um, and you're going to be, you're, you're in the midst of creating one of those beautiful conversations and spaces at Hollyhock. So let's talk a little bit about that climate for change and, and what is this all about, Kim? Oh, wow. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's so, it's such a rich piece of work. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really learning a lot. Um, I am sitting on this incredible steering committee with some real powerhouses um, when it comes to, um, you know, leading the climate movement, um, you know, doing lots of boots on the ground campaigning, um, thought leadership. And so we are together planning a gathering um, of leaders, uh, sectoral leaders, um, Indigenous leaders, uh, folks who have an interest and experience in moving and building power. And the idea is to think about how can we um, confront the new climate denialism. Um, so Seth Klein has written about this prolifically in his book, The Good War. Um, the idea being that, you know, there's a gap in terms of the kind of um, messaging, some might call it lip service, that our political leaders are paying to the climate emergency um, and a sort of you know, dearth of action that meets the scale and pace um, demanded by climate science and justice. Uh, so yeah, we've got to sort of stream through this retreat to address, uh, to address that and how to kind of move into what Seth calls an emergency mode. We also have this other um, way of thinking about this as far as, um, you know, what kinds of, of practices can be cultivated to help shift the mindsets um, that would bring people and organizations into better relation with land and community. Um, so we have some wonderful people from the Indigenous Climate Action Network that are sitting on the committee that are really arriving with that sort of perspective. So um, as the producer for this gathering, I am you know, thinking about how to create this um, big robust container to provide for us to see the climate movement in all of its diversity, um, really think about the gaps and the places where it is stuck um, and think about you know, how do we work across difference? Um, how do we accommodate different theories of change for, um, for doing that change work in the world? Um, so there'll be opportunities to kind of work in groups and then break out um, based on sort of different kinds of um, strategic levers or different kinds of frameworks that people might be using. That sounds incredible. And who are the people who are going to be attending this, like that are going to be signing up for this? I'm so curious to know. I want to be hanging out with them. Yes, amazing. we have amazing applicants, um, you know, coming from um, really different backgrounds. We've got some great folks that are uh, working on, you know, LNG, um, stopping LNG. And, you know, we have uh, a lot of uh, Indigenous applicants um, who are coming and representing their communities. Um, we have uh, folks from academia and um, the environmental nonprofit uh, sector uh, really looking at trying to expand and invite folks the representing faith organizations, uh, labor organizations, um, you know, groups or people that have experience um, building coalitions and, and partnerships. Um, really a space for uh, individuals who probably aren't working in government. There's actually, Hollyhock is providing another uh, retreat 
specifically geared to that group. Um, this, these are folks who are working at sort of uh, different um, local to um, regional to national sort of organizations, I think that are, that are not necessarily in the government space. That's interesting, having a separate organization for government officials. And so can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm curious about, um, like, that must have been a, a decision that was consciously made. Yeah, you know, uh, Hollyhock is really, um, they have dedicated, um, you know, funding and energy to like build out uh, a series of climate change programming, um, you know, and some of it's directed for folks who are experiencing burnout, uh, you know, frontline campaigners, people who have been doing uh, direct action, land defenders, um, they are doing a lot to try and um, provide them with sort of healing experiences. Mm. So just come and reconnect with the land. Cortez is beautiful, incredibly, um, you know, resonant space, as you know, mm -hmm. you've been in Hollyhock and Cortez. Um, so some of it's really just, you know, for that audience. Uh, I think the work around, and I'm not involved in the other, um, the other gatherings. I'm really just, I was brought in to produce this one. Um, you know, I think the idea with, with government is they just face a certain set of um, both constraints mm -hmm. as well as sort of mechanisms at their disposal to be able to address climate. Um, so yeah, it's really about kind of bringing local government um, leaders into into a place where they can share and like have a lot of peer learning, share best practices. Um, you know, some of it I think will be bringing up up to speed folks who are maybe um, new to understanding, um, you know, climate imperative. And so yeah, that's just like a dedicated space for that group. These are folks who may be um, thinking about how do we push our leaders into mm -hmm. mode? You know, how do we push on systems um, to try and get folks to move beyond incrementalism? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and I can see the need to actually separate that so that people can come into like feeling in a safe space because I know for myself, um, and I don't, you know, I haven't really talked to, I talk about it a lot, I process it a lot, but I know for myself working in different levels of government when federal, provincial and municipal, and being somebody who cared deeply, like just resonated deeply with, you know, air, water, land, and you see it as one complete system and you can see when one section of the system is pushed, how it either damages the rest of the system, has an effect on the rest of the system, or it can heal it. So being somebody deeply feeling and thinking like that in a government environment, it was traumatic mm -hmm. actually to be in a space working in a place where you look around and you're just like, um, almost, you know, made fun of because you cared about the planet so deeply and you really wanted to make change and all you received was pushback, like all I received was pushback after pushback after pushback and, and it's, you know, and I understand it's the way that our government is designed. It's risk adverse. It is um, tied into a four-year campaigning cycle. So everybody internally in every single department in a municipality or at the provincial level is also beholden to these um, political timeframes, these campaigning timeframes. It's all about elections, elections, elections. And 
despite what the citizens of the community wanted, the citizens want to see this change. The citizens want to protect the planet. And they're relying on our local leaders to implement policies to get the results that they want, which is a better health, better environment, better, you know, communities. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the people who are working in government, I mean, you, you can't take a lot of action. It's, it's almost designed to not allow change to happen is what I found working internally. Yeah. I mean, the bureaucracy is real. It's uh, so fucking real, like painfully real, like a knife in my chest real. And it's, you know, I wish that citizens understood that, you know, like there's just um, in some ways, you know, you're just kind of like trying to nudge like this plotting beast. I will say though, you know, I've just done a recent bit of, of research looking at um, the city of Toronto's sort of history of climate action. Um, and it was really, it's incredible to see like how the leadership at the, of elected officials, so mayor and council that were strongly committed to climate action and then sort of like staff folks from who really drove the, the climate agenda and to see the sort of like different forms of leadership and then a community that was also really activated. Um, so I think we are seeing this more and more, you know, I'm hearing these, there are these superstar staffers, I think about Saanich and they are just leading the charge in turn. They're not very big, um, but in terms of climate planning and implementation, and I'd say, you know, I think that that is really attributable to um, the, the role of staff. So I think I, I'm hoping, this is my optimism coming through, there are like more opportunities for folks like how, how you were and, you know, now um, probably because of all the work um, that folks did, you know, early generations of staff. Like, I, I, I think there's been some progress, I hope. Yeah. And I mean, we have to hope that that's true too, because it's the only thing that has ever happened. And, you know, and we have to, and, you know, there was another part I loved about how, um, you know, Climate for Change, this beautiful event, what are the dates again that it's happening? It is June 26th to 30th of this year. Yep. Sunday, June 26th to Thursday, uh, June 30th. Okay. That's amazing. Anybody who's listening to this, you want to sign up, you want to apply first, you apply to attend this event and, um, and then attend the event because um, it is, it is going to be powerful. All the events that have ever been hosted at Hollyhock are so deeply moving and they are so transformational at the individual level, at the soul level of the individuals, but then at the collective level as well, because when you leave any of these events, you basically have friends for life. Mm-hmm. is what happens and partnerships start to develop so if you're coming from your own organization if you're an entrepreneur if you're coming from you know working in a different company all of a sudden all of these companies are partnering together it just it just it's like this beautiful um uh like I want to say a hurricane in a positive sense but it's just like this big swirling and you know and it's just sucking everything into it and it's so powerful the transformation that can take place so please, everybody, you need to, we'll give you the link at the end of the show so that you can sign up. But um, no, I just want to go back to that, that I do see, yeah, I understand the need to keep that separate government officials. And so then you allow this deep healing and this deep ability for people to be able to speak from their heart and be able to feel, you know, that, that they can work together and empowered to, you know, put everything on the table. And then of course, there is a healing that does need to take place in a separate group with the political uh, 
staffers and because it is we have created and it's a human made system we've created, but it all can also be recreated in any way. I do have hope and maybe I'm hopeful too hopeful in saying that it will happen, but I don't know. I, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. As I say that, I'm like, I don't know. But Hollyhock, if they're doing work, then I know there's potential around this. Yeah, you know, I think what's really powerful about the Hollyhock model is this um, real commitment to bringing in the whole person. Mm -hmm. um, so creating space that is, um, you know, definitely we, we want to create safe space so people are, are there. Not necessarily space that isn't, uh, we're not talking about comfortable. It's not always no. about everyone feeling totally comfortable. Like hopefully we're getting challenged. Um, oh, at Hollyhock, no, no one goes there expecting comfort. I mean, I think you want it. You the idea of being safe, but also it is infusing these gatherings with arts and music and breath and um, grounding. Like there's just like this idea of really thinking about how do we engage our whole selves, not just like our cognitive, you know, overthinking brains. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, and this has been, I think, another kind of crucial misstep of the environmental movement and, and climate movement has been just an over-reliance on the sort of like reporting of these like, you know, very technical kinds of facts about the change that's happening in the world and what needs, to, how we can, uh, address it and it's totally uh divorced from mm -hmm. actually like you know engaging people in their at their heart and their their soul and their bodies and like all of the ways that we experience the world so i think hollyhock does a lot and this this retreat will do a lot to um to really bring people in in a good way mm -hmm. um so they can just be you know feel the sort of like energy to do keep doing this work because it's really hard yeah, and we it is really, really hard. And the burnout rate that you talked about is very, very true. Um, you know, I did my master's at Royal Roads in environmental education and communication, which is all about, you know, systems change, behavior change at the individual level, at the community level, um, at national levels, it depends whatever you want to focus your your project on, but it was about making change. And um, and there's a lot of burnout. You know, so you, you, your heart's in it, your soul is in this, but then you reach this point where you're just like, I just can't do this work anymore. And it's either because you feel like you're not making change is, you know, often, or you're up against so much resistance, or you feel like the system is so big that you can't do it. And, you know, one of the most important courses that were taught in our program was systems theory and systems change, right? That it's, it's understanding that everything is one complete system. So even if you are doing a tiny, 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 tiny bit of work in there, it can be massive. Or if you're doing big, big, big work over here, it still has a change, effects change in the system. But the burnout is very, very real and very, very true. So to have a space like this that what you're creating where people can get invigorated again, I love that. So can you explain a little bit about what will happen in these days so people know when they go to apply, like what they can expect, or is that all secret and powerful? And Oh, no, of course not. Um, it is um, dynamically unfolding. So we almost have our program, um, com you know, completely set. Um, we really want to, you know, begin by 
you know, first understanding like what people, what people are arriving with, uh, you know, who they are, um, which communities or organizations they are representing and bringing in, uh, you know, what are the intentions for this, for this gathering? What is everyone's intentions? Um, we want to move into a conversation on uh, mapping the climate movement, understanding, uh, you know, sort of relationally, as well as like in, in the context of uh, traditional territories, like, you know, what is everyone working on? Uh, and then thinking about, okay, where is this movement stuck? Uh, you know, where, where are the gaps? Where are the, the, the flaws? Um, you know, constantly wanting to sort of set, um, be really cognizant of the kind of context, historical context of colonialism and a lot of the sort of um, systems of oppression that are really hampering um, an, an inclusive movement of people who are um, supported and heard and have space for their leadership, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so we'll be engaging a lot of those sort of themes. Um, you know, moving between group work of, of having these big conversations, um, talking about how we can decolonize um, climate work, uh, and then having emergent space for breakouts. So there are gonna be some people in this gathering whose uh, organizations um, are very strategically aligned already. Um, you know, some of the big uh, ENGOs, and so the work that they probably will do in those breakouts is going to be very strategic. It could be, you know, a pre-campaign that they're going to work on in their breakouts. For other folks, they may um, be coming at this in, in, from a, a less aligned perspective and, and maybe want to kind of uh, excavate and uncover um, some of the, the different ways that they might work together or different kinds of partnership. It's emergent, so I can't really say at this yeah. point. Um, you know, we do have this um, deep desire to um, embody some of the practices that we think are really important. So uh, the creating of safe space, the, um, the, the opportunity for folks to have cultural support. So we will have an elder in residence um, from Klahush, which are the um, First Nations folks whose land we're gonna be gathering on. Um, we wanna make sure that people throughout the whole time, that their sort of like whole selves are seen and supported. Mm -hmm. um, we have, you know, this idea too, to have stories. Um, so, Often, you know, the lessons we've learned, um, they're not always about the successes, you know, the work we need to be able to move from a place of humility and share the times when things didn't work. So we have space in our program um, for those kinds of stories that will hopefully be very heartfelt. Um, and yeah, opportunities for participants to identify the kinds of um, skills building that they would like to do on the third day. Um, so we do have some giants um, from the climate movement, you know, Sapora Berman is on our committee, uh, Seth Klein, Anjali Apura, we have got a lot of like people with incredible um, experiences. Um, so we're trying to carve space in the program for them to be able to um, share some of some of their experience and, and their skills. So yeah, it's unfolding. Um, one of the other pieces is um, hopefully some digital content. So recognizing that not everyone can or wants to travel 
to get to uh, Cortez, which is quite remote. Um, we want to have opportunities for them to join uh, a virtual session or two. Um, so we're just developing that out as well. That is perfect. And how many people you're hoping to have? We have a cap of, um, oh dear, I think we're, I think we're looking for about 50 people. Um, that's kind of the sweet spot. Yeah. To kind of facilitate deep conversation, building relationships, um, with, uh, you know, a bit of, um, hopefully different views, different perspectives, different experiences, um, that are represented by the, the attendees. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I've been at Hollyhock for Social Venture Institute. I taught at Hollyhock. So I've been in groups of 12 all the way up to like 125. And 50 is a very beautiful, sweet spot. So I'm, yeah, so excited. Um, I know I'm going to be, I have to, I'm pretty sure I'm attending this. I haven't applied yet, but I'm going to. <laughs> it is on my list. Um, and want to try and bring some of my, our team members as well, because it is such an important event. And so where can people register and start to apply for this? Yeah. So if they go to the Hollyhock, um, website, so that's H O L L Y H O C K.ca. Um, and then on the, the menu, they'll see programs and they can scroll and look for climate for change, uh, and the dates of July 26th to the 30th. Um, if they open up that page, the, the link to apply is there, uh, as well as scholarship opportunities. So this is really important. Awesome. Um, uh, Hollyhock has dedicated, um, you know, a, a big portion of the budget for this event to uh, partial and full scholarship, which will cover uh, tuition, accommodation, food, and travel. Uh, and that's really for um, equity deserving folks. So we really want to make sure that no one is denied having um, a, a chance to attend um, uh, based on anything like that. So uh, that information is on that webpage as well. Amazing. And at Hollyhock, just so people know, there's opportunities to camp. So if it, you know, if budgets are tight, um, you can camp at Hollyhock. And then of course you can have different um, suites. So you can share dorms. Uh, you can have individual, I think, rooms as well. Uh, so there's shared accommodation and private accommodation, just so people know. And the camping is amazing because you get your little camping um spot and the trees are just so gorgeous you're right on the ocean um the property is phenomenal there's hammocks around there's adenondrack chairs you you know it's just it's just one of the most stunning places um so one the last question i have is just about the application process because i know that sometimes when there's an application it can create anxiety in people to you know be like why is there an application and will i you know be invited to attend or you know is it a pass fail so what are you looking for in the participants and why is there an application process yes um that's a great question so um you know the the main thing is we you know we want to have um you know a good cross-section of folks who are doing this work um who have a demonstrated commitment to um working to just transitions so moving beyond incrementalism, you know, so thinking about change in these big systemic ways, um, where we, we want folk who have experience working with equity seeking groups, um, who, you know, we're trying to, we recognize that the environmental nonprofit sector is primarily white, um, middle-aged, you know, 
comes with a whole bunch of privilege. Um, and that's really, it's, you know, it's really a detriment <laughs> to the movement and to everybody to exclude um, really important voices. Um, you know, mostly uh, all of this climate work needs to lead with an equity lens. And so we're trying to create that in this gathering. Um, so really looking at the kind of, you know, energy that people are bringing with them, the communities and organizations that they represent, um, you know, and a sort of demonstrated experience um, are all kind of be good attributes. Um, but it's a conversation, uh, you know, we're, I'm engaged with all of the different people who've applied uh, and we are looking for letters of support or referral that will also kind of just be a testament to the fact that people aren't just coming as themselves, they're really bringing their, their community or their organization with them. Because um, we would love for, you know, the, the person to not only sort of be, um, to benefit personally from the gathering, but the learnings and the relationships to actually be brought back. Uh, and have a have a sort of more collective benefit. Yeah. No. Yeah. I love how this is all designed, and these are really important points that you're bringing up. You know, we just um, uh, you had the chance to see it um, to to see our documentary that came out, and yeah, thank you. And you know, and it was interesting though because we, you know, I sent that doc documentary out to a select few people to get them to review it, and we wanted feedback and reviews. And and you know, we sent it out, and it was interesting because I found that we the majority of responses were it was just so overwhelming, and it was people that said, "Oh my goodness!" Like, yes, we have to talk about. Um, you know, like you said, returning to country foods, we have to talk about um, decolonizing our plates and a lot of the documentary, it really, um, people were crying and they were saying that it reminded them of their grandmothers and it reminded them of when, oh yeah, that's right. Like every home used to have a garden or we used to shop at community markets and farmers markets. And then it was interesting because on the other side, a few individuals responded back and they're like I don't get it oh interesting which exactly that's what I said too because you know this is a film about you know working with indigenous communities it's a film about decolonizing our plates it's a food about connecting with our ancestors and I realized the few people who wrote back and said I didn't get it they were wealthy white men mm. and so I see the need for inclusivity and making sure that underrepresented voices are part of climate for change and hollyhock. It is really important because it completely shifts the whole conversation when you have individuals who've never actually been faced with um, inequalities. Yeah. And there's just some things that just get missed. But one of the things that I did is I actually just provoked a question in these individuals who responded with, I don't get it. And I asked them, I said, could it be that you are wealthy and white and male? And could that be part of the reason? And with that, it actually got them thinking and the response was like, actually, you're right. But it was beautiful because it then allowed us to enter into a different kind of conversation. But it is still a conversation that requires um, sensitivity because when when you do grow up in a place of privilege and you and I grow up in a place of privilege we're still women but there was privilege that we experienced that so many other people don't 
experience. Um, you know, maybe because you're indigenous or it's financial or it's color of skin. And I mean, I grew up feeling like I was white. So even though I am a person of color, I still do feel privileged in a lot of ways. And I was, even though, you know, I had to look hard and deep for places of, you know, inequality, which I see from being a woman, from being a person of color. But at the same time, it's by acknowledging that and there are sensitivities when somebody's acknowledging that um, place of privilege for the first time. So I do um, understand why this event is designed like that. And I have to thank you for that, because I think in a lot of events around climate change, that's not brought into consideration. Yeah, I, I thank you. I mean, um, yeah, we're, we're trying, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think it's like, there's, there's so much humility that's needed in this work to allow for messiness and, mm -hmm. um, I think some of the work, like as a, as a white, you know, um, as a white person is really, it's like, what does, um, what role do I play as, as in terms of um, getting out of the way, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in like carving out space or like ensuring there's space for those other voices, you know, for indigenous leaders, um, you know, like that's, that's my work. Like I need to, you know, find the spaces where I need to be a leader, um, you know, amongst other white folk. <laughs> and those times when I, like my work is actually to listen and to, yeah. and to step back and to support and to, you know, be put into the place where I, I, that, that other, that other person thinks I should go. Um, so yeah, it's, and it's so that butts up against, you know, our like capitalist kind of culture where everyone is trying to, you know, everyone's trying to be a leader. And we have this, like, there's this emphasis on, you know, individualism and like, you know, merit and like, you know, bootstrap mentality of like getting out there. And, um, and it's, we've often sort of see that as being so fundamental to be an entrepreneur, which you are mm -hmm. an incredible entrepreneur, Nicolette. Um, but I just wonder like, how does that, how is that balanced with the other need to like quietly do the work and, mm -hmm. and not always like be a leader, be like the person that is like a deckhand. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, like um, that's an important role too. And how do we, can we move, can we be both of those things depending on, you know, who we're, who we're surrounded by. So anyway, yeah, it's uh, yeah, this, this gathering, I think there's gonna be, um, you know, personally, there's been already so much learning for me and just working with um, this phenomenal steering committee and trying to like really think and be thoughtful about the design of the program. Um, and yeah, hopefully having the right people in the room. And as you know, there's a, a bit of like, it's kind of alchemy, right? Like the mm -hmm. people who come are the people who are supposed to be there and what they bring is like, you can't foresee that. It has to just like sort of emerge I love it all. I love it all. I love how you started off to you just before we started recording, how you said there's a deep need and a place to make change and to be engaged. And um, definitely Climate for Change event at Hollyhock is going to be the place where all of that just gets to kick off. It's going to be so beautiful. Um, yeah, so thank you, Kim, for the work that you are doing in this world. It is huge. It is profound. It is needed. Um, and, and, and I love that you're part of creating this gathering to just uh, 
it, it is, it's a catalyst for change, this event. So everybody out there who's listened to this show today, please go to the website, learn more about the work that Kim is doing. You can follow her on LinkedIn. Um, you can follow the work she's doing through the University of Toronto and her fellowship that she's doing there. And of course, share this event with everybody who you feel needs to be part of this. Thanks, Kim, for being on our show today. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. And I'm so grateful and appreciative of all the work that you're doing too, Nicolette. It's, uh, you're always an inspiration to me. Um, I talk about you a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Kim, you are so sweet. Um, And that feeling is mutual and it's always gonna be, you and I will be doing this work, I see for a lifetime. Um, It's just just who we are and it's just the work that we do. And um, and it's just fun, good, hard work that, it's just what we do. So I hope you enjoyed that show and please share this episode with any of your friends that are in government, CEOs, leaders, people who are passionate about protecting our climate or protecting our planet and stepping into big action when it comes to Um, addressing climate change. This event is important, especially if you are feeling exhausted from all the work that you've currently been doing and you need to recharge yourself. Cortez Island, Hollyhock is the place to go for this particular event because you are going to be surrounded by powerhouses. You are going to be surrounded by people who want to work with you, who want to hear your voice, who want to hear your ideas. And also you'll be able to hear the ideas of so many other people, voices that you've never been able to hear from before, um, new voices, old voices. And then from that place together, everyone will co-create the next steps for addressing climate change. So really, really important that you sign up for this event because it will fill out. And like I said, share this episode and we'll see you next week for another episode episode of the Eat Realty Heal podcast. Bye everyone.